All right, we are on page 75 in the study guide, which is 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So for review, we were talking about chapter 9 last, in the last class. And in that chapter, Paul gives himself as an example. So there's a flow of, lo- of, of thinking here. He's, remember, this whole section is about the problem of food. Starts off by giving you the principle in chapter 8. He says the principle there is that love is more important than food and knowledge, in a certain sense, at least the knowledge in this case. And then in chapter 9, Paul's giving him his self as an example of his rights that he gave up. So he's only talking about his rights in order to say, I gave them up. And, and that's important because, and I liked how the discussion went last week, because sometimes I've heard chapter 9 used as justification for full-time preachers. That's true in a certain sense, but only secondarily. Right? It's primarily, it's actually more about justifying full-time tent making than full-time preaching, actually, which is kind of backwards, as it sounds like. So I remember hearing, a, there was a preacher who once said, he said, I cannot imagine doing anything else other than being a full-time preacher. And there's two ways to take what he said. The, the way that would be inconsistent with Paul would be to say, I wouldn't preach unless I get paid. And the consistent way to say would be that I would still preach even if I had to go take a job at Lowe's and be willing to do it on the side. I suspect that's actually what he meant. And that's why if you understand that, then it, the context makes a lot more sense because as Paul goes on, he, he starts to contrast voluntary versus involuntary work. Right? That makes a lot more sense when you see it like that. And now, he's, and today we're going to finally get into the answer. So he starts off with the principle, then he goes to the example, and then it gets finally, after several chapters, gets to the answer. Now, I liked Ryan Davis's comment about how it must have been kind of frustrating, because like, just give us the answer. And he's like, oh no, we've got to go through multiple chapters before we even get there. Well, we're finally going to get there. So now he gives you the actual answer when it's right and when it's wrong. And this fits something that John Carline said in class, the first class which was when I asked the question about what kind of things would you like to know more about or dig into, and he said, getting into the principles behind why he says what he does. That's exactly what Paul's doing here. That's why he spends so long talking about that. All right, and I think that's everything I was going to have. Oh, so just a little bit, geez, so that I don't forget at the end. Hopefully I'll remember too. But uh, So the next class, we're going to do the lesson on... It's the topical lesson right after chapter 10, and that's going to form a, a bridge between this section, the problem of food, and also get us, start to get us thinking about the next section. So that one's about, I, I'm trying to remember how I titled it. I think it was, Neither Cause Nor Take Offense. So it's going to, we're going to talk about some of the issues, like why is it that in the church it feels like there are certain topics that are hard to talk about. We just have a hard time with that. I've noticed that in the past. I think this congregation does a pretty good job about it. Let's think about why is that? Why is it, what makes some of these topics hard to talk about? I don't want to talk about the topics themselves. I just want to talk about why they're hard to talk about. And what can we do to get better at that? All right, I think that's everything I had. So Tony is going to kick us off with a prayer.
So I moved to Indiana just a few years ago, and the traffic laws work a little bit different in Indiana than they did in Illinois. So one time, so I pull up to the intersection, I'm about to turn left, so this is, what, this is what I did, right? Turn left, but I didn't go into the closest lane, I went into the outer lane, right? So I do this, police car pulls me over, and says, sir, do you know why I pulled you over? And I said, well, I didn't turn into the centermost lane, I turned into the outer lane. And the officer says, you're right, that is why I pulled you over. It's not illegal in Indiana, though, but you thought it was illegal, and you violated your conscience, so here's a ticket. That, that did not happen, by the way, okay? Because <laughs> that's not how the law works. And yet, when you think about some of the passages that Paul talks about, how the conscience works, he actually says in a certain sense, it does kind of work like that. And you know, this almost seems a little unfair because it says, it's almost like Paul's saying there's double jeopardy here. If you do something that's wrong, you get busted for it. If you do something that's not wrong, but you thought it was wrong, you also get busted for it. 
So how does that work? I mean, that's not really super intuitive, it seems to me. So we're going to talk about the conscience today and try to figure out how this is, because I've had several conversations with people, and you start to realize it's actually kind of squishy. Even defining what do you mean by conscience is harder than you might think. So we're going to do chapter 10. I'm going to kick us off. Let's go ahead and listen to the text. If I'm unmuted, or somebody, who's got the thing? Is it... Or we can have somebody read it, but it's kind of long. So. And Carrie does not want to get stuck with another long text. And last time she got canceled, too, so that was not good. All right. I think somebody's going to read it. It might be wrong in my slides. Okay. We can have somebody read it. Somebody want to read it? Micah? Thank you, sir. First Timothy's chapter 10. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud, and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Though most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things, as they also lusted, and do not become idolaters, as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to blood. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted, and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain as some of them also complained, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples. And they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you, except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless is it not the communion of the blood of Christ. The bread which we break is it not the communion of the body of Christ. For we, though many, are one bread and one body. For we all partake of that one bread. Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? What am I saying then? That an idol is anything, or what is offered to idols is anything? Rather, that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons, and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. 
Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things help. Let no one seek his own, but each one his other's well-being. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market, asking no questions for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. If any of those who do not eat, or who do not believe, invites you to dinner, and you desire to go, eat whatever is set before you, asking no question for conscience sake. But if anyone says to you, this was offered to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who told you, and for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's, and all its fullness. Conscience, I say, not to your own, but that of the other. For why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? But if I partake with thanks, why am I evil spoken of uh, for the food over which I give thanks? Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own prophet, but the prophet of many, that they may be saved. All right. Thank you. So what did you notice or anything that you thought was noteworthy? Any questions you had about that text? Lisa. Yeah, it's true. When we, if you think of the, the things that people think are the big deals, they don't put grumbling usually in that list, right? <laughs> yeah, good point. Yeah, what do y'all think? Well, actually, I think Daniel had a comment. Well, let's talk about that. Yeah, that, see, that's actually interesting. There's a certain sense to where there, there's a certain appropriateness to having a, a level of ignorance. I think that's a good point because I remember somebody saying how if there was some business and they were saying, no, you, you shouldn't shop at that business because they do something with their money that's inappropriate. And I was like, um, yeah, you have not looked at a lot of businesses, right? If you, if you start going down that road, you can go down that route, but you're basically going to be Amish, okay? That's how you're going to have to be. So let's, let's talk about Carrie's question about how, how and what, what, does it, what does it mean that they were baptized under the cloud, right? That, 
the water wouldn't make a lot more sense. It's like, wait, wait, the cloud? Okay, so that would fit, because when we think about baptism, this is related to us having that relationship with God and therefore being close to Him. I know, I know that that is what it was talking about. I don't understand how that's a baptism. Okay, so it's more of the question of how does the cloud serve as a baptism? Okay, good point. Jesse? Is this one of the situations where baptism to us is a spiritual term, but then it is It, yeah, and I think that's yeah. I think it's a good way to put it because it clearly does have a spiritual connotation. I mean, obviously, we know that baptism is more than just getting wet. Also, if you look at the way that Paul talks about, he talks about this rock from which the water came. And if you read that in this very wooden sense, it gets really weird. It's like you really think so. Christ was not just incarnated into flesh; he was turned into stone back then, and then the water came out of him. But that seems a little bit weird. So it seems more like a typological connection than. Which might mean, it might still leaves a question a little bit open about what does it mean by a baptism. But I do think it's supposed to be a typological connection, maybe not to be too heavily literally. I mean, it's not like they were covered in a cloud, right? Then it would be easy to see where they're baptized. Josh, and then Nina. Oh, and then Raymond. I guess you're first, Raymond. Yeah, and it's, if you make a good point too, because we have to see what are the right links behind it. Sometimes we look at this and it's like, wait, what way were they immersed? You know, I can look it up in BDAG and see it. It says it's immersion. Well, what way were they immersed by it? It's like, well, baptism means several things. So which of those ones were the ones he was bringing in? Uh, I think Josh. And then Nina had her hand raised too. And Bob. Go ahead, Josh. The Egyptians got wet. <laughs> right. They were in the midst of it in the sense that they're, I mean, without that miracle, they would have been drowning, right? They were deep within it, in its midst, as deep as you go. And there's a metaphorical sense in which they were more close to God than anybody else had ever been in recent history for them. 
They were in his midst. We have the cloud, the cloud represents God's overall presence with them, and then that would include when he filled the tabernacle. Right? He was literally with them. They were literally in his presence. So there's this metaphorical sense in which they were, in a sense, immersed in his presence. Yeah, good point. And Naina. Going along with what Josh said, but the it actually in Exodus uh, 13, when it says, and Yahweh went before them by day in the pillar of cloud and led them along the way by night in the pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel day uh, by day and by night. So, in the sense, it, metaphorical sense, that we are covered. Once we are immersed, it just means we're covered. And we're completely covered by Jesus' blood and protected. In the second, they were covered by the God going with them the entire time. So going on with him being in the presence of, they were in the presence of him, said because he went before them the whole way. And so it's not only were they in the presence, but they were totally covered by him for protection. And I like how you brought up the leadership aspect, too. Because we recognize that part of being baptized is submitting ourselves to our king, and therefore following him, which is why repentance is connected to it. And then it makes sense why Moses, being baptized under Moses, in a certain sense would make sense, because we were, Moses was the leader, and therefore wherever the state, wherever Moses led them is where they would go. Bob, and then Mitch. It's interesting that the word baptized is used, which we think of the word immersion. But I like that you brought up cover. You know, what does the waters of baptism do to us? They cover us completely. If we're not covered, you know, it's not really baptism, it's not really immersion. And what does the waters of baptism do to us? It washes away our sins with his blood. That's protection. That's covered. When you say to somebody, I got you covered, that means I got your back, I'm, I'm watching over you, I'm going to protect you to the best of my ability. What was God and Moses doing with the children of Israel? He was covering them. He was protecting them. He had walls of uh, the Red Sea on one side blocked off, walls in it, and no water on the other side blocked off, and he kept the Egyptians from getting to them. He had him covered always. So I think that's what he's talking about. Yeah, well said. I like that. And that, that fits something that it's, Craig has said several times about how, I can't remember how he puts it, but like you come as you are, but God loves you too much to leave you as you are. And that's that twofold aspect. Like if, if God's going to cover your sins, he's going to wipe them all away, and he's going to give you freedom from sin, well, that means freedom from the past sin. It also has to mean freedom forward, where you're not under its control anymore. It has to be both sides. That's what real freedom means. So it has to be covered on both ends, which means following him and being led by him. Mitch? Yeah, I was just wondering if the cloud could be um, God's presence on Mount Sinai. I don't know if, um, if the smoke that is referred to could be used as a cloud or not. I know we typically will read this in chronological order. Could he be 
Yeah, it's a good question. I'm trying to remember too, and I know I looked it up at one point, whether or not the words for smoke and cloud are the same word. I think they're the same word, but I'm not 100% positive. I have to go look it up, which would draw that connection a little bit tighter. This is a really good point. There was something that Raymond texted me. He was reading a book, and I think it was Frank Turek. And Frank Turek said, it took one day to take the Israelites out of Egypt, but it took 40 years to get Egypt out of the Israelites. I mean, that, that is so true. And you look at their history. We mankind have a hard time with this. So this goes all the way back to chapter 8 when he starts telling them, not everybody has this knowledge, and you've got to, take, you got to be, take this more seriously than you think you are. Yeah, that's a good point. Especially, why would he spend three chapters on it unless it was actually serious? Yeah, very good point. Lisa. I like that too because when you when you see Jesus throughout the Old Testament, you can see how it brings all the story back together again. It's it's a way more interesting read when you read the Old Testament in that way. All right. Anything else before we move on? Let's talk about the conscience then. And this will be oh, there's a couple of things I wanted to point out. So there's two things that, there's actually two different situations in here, and it's wise to try to keep them separated because it'll, it'll make a lot more sense. In 10 through 14, he mentions one situation, which he has a different answer for than the other one. And then in 23 through 27, he has a second one. So the first one, you can even see this in the wording. And my mic is cutting. Is that cutting for you too? Okay. <laughs> is that what it is? I did wonder, okay. You're just going to have to read it then. Okay, so the situations are slightly different. Even the wording is a little bit different. Oh, wait, we have a TV in the back. Uh, so then, as you go through, he says the situation's different. The principle's different. So one of them, he says, flee from idolatry. So th- that is, like, just run away from it. And the other one, well, it's like, well, listen, some things that are lawful are not necessarily beneficial. So it might be okay. And you say, oh, well, it's not a sin. I can do it. Well, depends, right? And that, this is where you have to start looking at the situation. And I remember there was a scholar who said, 
it's not about the menu in that case, it's, a, it's about the venue. And I think he's right. And he actually refers to the problems in the first situation, he says it's partnering with demons. It struck me because in chapter 11 you can talk about the Lord's Supper. And in this case it's almost like the inverted Lord's Supper, the messed up one, because he talks about the cup and the table. He's going to talk about it again in chapter 11 too, but this one's messed up. That's different than the principle, the problem that's in the second one where it has to do with the conscience of the people that are there. And so you have to factor that in. So I think that's noteworthy because if you don't see that, it, it, you might actually lose some of the connection. Also is that Paul warns people to flee, and he does it twice. I, it was one thing that stuck out to me was the number of words he uses. So this goes back to Ryan's comment about how the idolatry is a big problem. He spends far more words on the idolatry problem. And so I thought that was noteworthy. The, Paul also says that, I, that what's the word for it? Uh, covetousness is idolatry. So that got me thinking. I was like, well, wait, wait if, this is, if this idolatry thing is a bigger deal than we think it is, I, I tried to put a chart together of how many times Jesus deals with wealth and greed versus dealing with problems with sex. It turns out that's actually really hard because you go look through there, it's like if, a, if he uses a parable and it refers to it, does all the words in the parable count, I don't know. So I didn't, I didn't make a chart, I got lazy. But one thing was really clear to me. He actually deals with greed more than he deals with problems with sex. And that was a bit of an eye-opener to me. I, I was kind of surprised by that. And I remember there's a quote from Tim Keller, and he didn't put a chart in there either, so he was lazy like I was. But he actually mentioned it. He said, Jesus warns people more often about greed than he does about sex. And he said that at one point he was going through, he was doing a series of sermons on various sins. And his wife said, I think you're going to have the fewest number of people in the one about greed. And he thought, really? He said, sure enough. Few people, very few people thought they had a greed problem. And then he started thinking about it. He said, you know what? He said, I've never once in years of preaching ever had somebody come to me and said, I have to confess the sin of greed. That's kind of weird. Yet Jesus deals with it a lot. So it's kind of a pernicious problem that it's hard for us to identify. So I thought that was noteworthy. So let's talk about the conscience. Conscience. So why does Paul tell the Corinthians to avoid raising issues of conscience in in this case? What What do you think about that? Yeah, so it seems as if this is one of those things where it's not intrinsically wrong. Because this is one of those, the two scenarios. The first scenario was intrinsically wrong. The second one was not. So then it's a question of, well, what do you do when it's not intrinsically wrong? And so maybe, if you go back to the whole food analogy about how well, you shouldn't shop there because they do, well, maybe you shouldn't be bringing that up to people because if you just raise this as a conscience problem, you know, maybe that's not always good. Yes, Bob. You know, sometimes we overthink things. And, uh, no, Bob, really. Questioning our, huh? I said, no, really. Yeah, you're totally right. We start questioning our own thoughts. And, and 
you know, there's nothing, you know, Paul's already said, there's nothing wrong with me. But if you start bringing up questions, then you've got questions about it, so it would be wrong for you until you get those questions sorted out. But the primary emphasis on this is on the conscience of the other person. They feel that that need is uh, taboo, or they may, or it's related to idols. Of course, if they're, it mentions non-Christian, a non-believer. So that's a little interesting too. You're trying to teach people to come out with idolatry. So you don't want to know if that meets an offer to an idol. But if they tell you it's an offer to an idol, there's a teaching moment. No, I shouldn't eat that because. Just a thought there. Yeah, uh, we start asking too many questions. We're afraid to do anything. Yeah, this was, I 100% agree. And I think sometimes we, we act like overactive consciences is not a thing. But it is, right? There's some people who just drive themselves crazy thinking, well, what, what if? What if questions are usually bad questions? They're just going to drive you crazy, right? Well, what if? What if I did this thing? What if this? What if this? Okay. And, and what happens is exactly what you just said. People do nothing. I remember it was, Jesse, you were saying at, at a previous congregation, somebody said something about how you had to have a certain grace for yourself when you go do some things because the only alternative is you just do nothing. You just kind of feel locked. And I think there's, I think there's a lot of truth in that. Nina. Also, when you go back to chapter 8, it says, therefore, as to the eating of food off the idols, we know that an idol has no existence, and there is no God but one. So if you're going in with us saying, you know that the only God is the God of heaven, you don't have to have a conscience about getting the meat and eating it, whether it was offered to idols or whether it wasn't. The conscience comes to the other person. If they have a conscience about it, then you need to watch to bring him to the Lord or not offend. But as far as eating meat, eating meat, there's no God but the one true God. It doesn't matter where it came from. Yeah, this fits the, the point that Raven is making. Like, this is not intrinsically wrong. So that situation is not the situation. This is a, a different one. And John. Yeah, I think it's really interesting.
Okay, it's a good point. This is actually from the Psalms, which noteworthy is the, if I'm, I'm trying to remember, I'm almost positive because I charted at one point, the most quoted book within 1 Corinthians, that's outside of 1 Corinthians itself, so, which, is, which is kind of noteworthy. So Mitch and then Ryan. Now, we're going to come back to that. So I, I, he had his head to raise it down. I want to come back and let's try to figure out why that is the case. It does seem like the context in this is actually talking about other people's conscience. It's not necessarily, it seems the focus isn't so much on us being divided in our own sense. It is on other people's conscience. What was the, the way you put it, you said, is it about, okay, so if you don't know, you would assume the best intention, that is, that they hadn't sacrificed to idols or something like that. One thing about, and I think Bobby brought up a good point, is that we are talking about, not necessarily talking about a Christian here. So when a Christian, I think that would fit better than a non-Christian, in which you, back then almost, I mean, if you were a non-Christian, technically they were atheists, but that was almost unheard of. So it was, I mean, they probably had gotten their meat from something that had been sacrificed to idols, only because that's the way the meat markets were. The meat markets actually run by the Corinthian government. One of the things I think that's going on here is that they... The Corinthian government, it seems like the Roman government oftentimes had special kosher meat for the Jews. And, but in some cases they would remove that. They would remove some of these rights they gave to the Jews if the situation between the Jews started to degrade. And so what some people think is that the Corinthians were eating kosher meat and all of a sudden the kosher meat wasn't available anymore. So that begged the question, what do we do? And some said, well, we think it's not a big deal. We all have knowledge, chapter eight. So we can eat. And then others said, no, 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 I don't think we can. Yeah, so I almost think my, my initial thought would be that I'm not sure that intentions is much of it only because I think he's thinking about people who are not necessarily Christians. If they were Christians, I think the argument would be stronger than intentions. But, but I don't know if I'm following your argument, so I, I could be totally off base. If somebody else has another thought on that. Ryan? Yeah, just envisioning how this could affect a, a Christian colonist, um, it, it creates a moral
Yeah, that, that's a good point. You don't want to form a pattern, and that pattern is like, might be okay in this case, but what if it's not okay, and you just decide you're going to do it anyway? Bob? I, I just thought about the fact that earlier he talks to Christians about dealing with Christians over this issue. And what is his point there? Uh, if it bothers them, don't do it. But this is different. This is about dealing with, as he says, unbelievers. So I think there's two different situations there. And so the, the way you handle it might be a little bit different. You know, if they don't say anything about it, go ahead and eat. Nothing wrong. If they say something about it, don't eat. Situation with Christians. If they feel it's wrong, don't mess with them. Don't, don't eat. Yeah, and, and so it's a little bit different. Same principle. Right. I guess this is similar, um, but I think the reason in chapter 10 that he says not to eat would be going back to the fact that idolatry is wrong. And if to this unbeliever they say, yeah, that's what this has been sacrificed, then by me going ahead and eating it, am I condoning or um, it's for his conscience? And if his conscience um, cannot be trained, you know. I have an opportunity to show that idolatry is not right and that would help trans conscience. Yeah, that does seem like what's going on here. It's like this sends the message that idolatry is okay. Which is which is exactly the opposite of what you want to do in this case. Katrina. Um, so going back to the song's reference. Um, I was gonna go I was gonna take us there, so thank you. <laughs> um, you know, often they use like the first verse to Later in that chapter, uh, 24, verse 4, it says, He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Uh, and it goes for it and talks about um, that relationship. And so, basically, like, don't correct yourself where you know you are walking into it. <coughs> don't overthink it. Yeah, and by the way, you're 100% correct, too. When, when they quote a verse, I think it can be well established. They're actually quoting that entire thing, that section, whatever that is in the psalm. It's probably the whole psalm. If it's another Old Testament book, it probably means the entire chapter. Yes? Yeah, 
And that's true even with words, because I've heard sometimes when somebody will dig up something and say, well, you shouldn't use that word because 500 years ago it meant something bad. It's like, well, it's, why don't we just leave it 500 years ago? Because that, we could be using words today that in 500 years from now will change their meanings, kind of like you said that symbol does. Well, I can't, I can't, I can't really do anything with that either. Mike. Could it be looking at the Psalm 24 context that Yeah, yeah, that's a good point, actually. So it's like even if the thing is not necessarily wrong, but what the way that you're talking about it and the, way, the messages you're sending winds up actually having a certain uncleanliness about it. So you could have unclean hands. I think there's another element, too, because it says there's a certain sense to which Paul might agree that in a certain sense, idols are nothing, in a certain sense. But listen, that doesn't mean that people don't get caught up in that sort of thing. So even if they are nothing... It also is a problem. Right? So it, if you think about it that way, then the earth and its abundance are the Lord's could be cut seen as maybe kind of an inversion of that. These idols are nothing because it's actually the Lord's. It's not really the idols me. But then again, people are confused on this. Yes. Part of the problem is here, which I think I heard the first bell, but we got to define conscience because I think that's actually hard. We didn't even get to the whole conscience, some of the other stuff I want to talk about, but that's okay. We'll, we'll ha- handle it on Sunday as well. Raymond. Do you give more credit to idolatry 
Yeah, I don't care what you put it because look, we know that it's a lie, but people believe lies, right? That's, so that's the, kind of the flip side of it. Yes? And it goes back to what Paul said in the previous chapter. He is trying to be so mindful of his audience that if, any, if I find that anything is going to hinder, us, hinder me presenting the gospel to you, I'm going to give that thing up. You Corinthians, I could have charged you for this, but no, I'm going to give that up um, to the Jews that became as a Jew. So he, he wraps up the chapter by saying, you know, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, uh, that they may be saved. So as we interact with other people, you know, am I insisting that I can do this, let me do this, or am I saying, this is going to be a barrier between you and the gospel? I'm just going to get that thing out of the way. I need you to get the gospel. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with you. And I think that mindset shift may be more significant sometimes than we think. I was, one of the things that we're not going to wind up covering this in this class because we, we just don't have enough time, but I wanted to think through why is it that Paul focused on the cities versus going to rural areas? Like, we tend to assume people say, like, this is God's country, and they mean, like, a rural area. They don't usually say that mean downtown New York City. And I, so I started to read about what is it that's different when people go to cities, people who preach in cities versus people who preach in rural areas. And one of them fit with what you're saying because the guy said, he said, I moved to a big city and I realized I had to clarify what is important and worth talking about and what is not essential. He said, when you're out in rural areas, there's just the things, there's more things you agree on. You can talk to somebody about you know, some sort of... Uh, Politics, for example, and you're more likely to agree. If you look at the statistics, right, people tend to agree on politics when they get out in the rural areas. He said, moving to the city, I had just realized that's, I, I don't share that with them. It's totally different. So I needed to realize to not mention, he said, some of these things because it just becomes a hindrance for no good reason. What do you win? You win a political argument. Who cares? It's, it's nothing compared to the big deal, right? So I thought that really stuck with me that that preacher made that observation. All right. I want to talk about the conscience still. So let's, let's do that on Sunday because I, I want to work through some of that. I want to try to define it. I think that's actually hard to define. And it turns out when I studied the English word versus the Greek word, they actually have a little bit of a difference in meaning, which when I studied that, it turns out it made a lot more sense in the New Testament. All right. Thanks, y'all.